All right, so let's uh, let's jump into the book of Revelation. I mentioned last week I was I was asked 30 years ago to start with us with preaching through the book of Revelation. Um, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not the dullest either. Okay, so I I wasn't ready then to do that, and I am not ready now uh, to do that. But we're going to anyway. I did not know what the book of Revelation meant 30 years ago. And I still don't know what the book of Revelation means uh, completely. Um, I did not know then kind of where I stood on some of the, the positions that you can take that come to us through the book of Revelation. I still don't know where I stand on some of those parts of the book of Revelation. God willing, I hope to know by the time we get to those passages. All right. So by the time we get to Revelation 20, maybe I'll know where I stack up on the millennium, all right? Maybe maybe not. Maybe all I'll do is just throw out a bunch of options and we'll just all guess together. Um, I don't know how long it'll take us to get through the book, in case you're wondering, all right? I just I have an idea. I have, a, I have an outline already in place. Um, but I don't know how, how long it'll take us. I'll go ahead and tell you, my goal is that we'll be finished by the end of this year, all right? But just hold on to that loosely, all right? Loosely. Just, um, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to lead us through it at the pace that, that He wants to go. Um, there's no book, I believe, in the Bible, including Daniel and Ezekiel, that are harder to understand than, than the book of Revelation. Um, and as a result of that, I don't think there's any book that has come up that has been kind of the the root, if you will, of bizarre theologies, bizarre positions, beliefs. Um, some of them, I think, are just absolutely weird. Um, the book of Revelation has been anything but a revelation to a lot of Christians for a long time. And I understand that. So it's, it's with a lot of trepidation, a, a lot of fear, really. Um, I, I'm not one who kind of lives in the past. I, I try not to live with regret. That being said, it's very clear. The book of Revelation begins and ends with a promise of blessing. So I was thinking, I've been thinking about that over the last several weeks. You know, have I, in some way, by just not being, I don't want to say not willing, but just not really feeling led that it was time to jump in to the book of Revelation? Have have we missed out, maybe? Well, I don't believe we have. So, truth be told, let's just full disclosure here. The reason, one of the reasons that we're beginning this series is, is another pastor here in the community, and I've been meeting together and talking together and praying together. It's Ben Francis over at Theresa. And Ben and I talked about a month ago about preaching a series on the seven letters to the churches that come in Revelation 2 and 3. At the beginning of the year, he said, I really believe there's a message in there that's relevant for our church, you know, as 2020 kind of continues into 2021. And he said, you know, I, I said, that's interesting. I said, why don't, you know, I'll, I'll pray through that too. Maybe we'll do that same thing. So, you know, I've been talking back and forth. And as I did that, it was like, I don't think it's, I don't think I feel led to do just Revelation 2 and 3. We're not going to pull those two chapters out of the rest of the book. Let's just go ahead and march through the whole thing. All right? So that's kind of 
the process of my thinking as I was going through that. Um, it's, it's not been an easy book for a whole lot of people for a long time. John Calvin wrote commentaries on just about every book in the Bible. He skipped Revelation. Martin Luther did the same thing, and he also skipped Revelation. And not only did he skip it, he just didn't like it. He didn't like it at all. He said, and I'm quoting him from the preface of, of, of his Bible, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. Speaking of Revelation. He said, no, Paul, hush. There is, there is one sufficient reason for the small esteem in which I hold it. That Christ is neither taught nor recognized. And I'm thinking, Marty, what were you reading? What book were you reading, Martin Luther, where you see Christ not being taught or recognized? Jesus is the theme of Revelation. He is. From, from chapter 1 to chapter 22, Jesus is the theme of it. And so that's, we're, that's what we're going to do. Now, I'll go ahead and say... Like with the genealogy in Matthew, if you don't understand the genealogy and the Old Testament background that's included in that genealogy, you will not understand the first advent of Jesus. Apart from the Old Testament, we can't understand anything about his birth, about his incarnation, about him coming into this. The same thing is true with the book of Revelation. Without an understanding of the Old Testament... It will make no sense. We will not understand his second coming because there is no other book in the Bible that has more in the New Testament that has more references to or allusions to the Old Testament than the book of Revelation. Some scholars say every single verse of the 404 verses has an allusion to the Old Testament in it. So. Revelation, the problem with Revelation for a lot of Christians is that we look at Revelation and then first thing start thinking about the future and trying to make the book of Revelation fit into the future. And that's not the pattern that I think is, is a wise pattern for the book of Revelation. The first thing to do is to look back. What did John see? What was he thinking what did John, this Old Testament scholar, have in mind as he takes this vision that was given to him and, and make it relevant to us as he reveals it to us? Okay, so let's begin, all right, with the first, first, the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. There's an unveiling. That's why we've chosen that theme for our series through the book of Revelation, an unveiling. And that unveiling is God's revelation of Jesus to us. It's the revelation of Jesus to us. It says there the revelation of Jesus. Now, the, the word revelation comes from the word, comes from the Greek word where we get the word apocalypse. And it, and it literally means to, to pull back the curtain or to unveil or to uncover something that previously has been covered or hidden, if you will. And so there's a sense here that what we're seeing, we would not see any other way unless somebody pulled back the curtain for us and let us peer in and see it, okay? And that's the picture that's seen here. Now, we understand, right, as, as Christians, 
that this physical world that we're in was created by God and it is good. Now, it's, it's in a fallen state. We understand that. But the physical world around us is good. There are philosophies, philosophies that had an influence on that early Christian church that said the, the physical world is bad. Our goal is to be rid of it and free from it. But as Christians, we don't believe that. The physical world is good. But we also believe that there is an unseen spiritual world. There is more to reality than what our physical eyes can see, right? And we have to have eyes of faith to see that. And the book of Revelation is the unveiling, the pulling back the curtain of that unseen reality that surrounds us now and will until this is fulfilled for us. So this world is not all there is. There's more around us, right? The writer of Hebrews says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what was seen was made out of what was invisible or what was not seen. Paul says in Ephesians 6, what? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but, but against principalities, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places, right? So there's an unseen world. And Revelation pulls that back for us. I believe Revelation is a commentary on what Paul says about the spiritual battles that we're facing now. It helps us understand what it is to battle against these unseen forces. And it gives us assurance that in the end we win. We were talking about our theme. You know, I asked Susan, what do you think the theme for Revelation ought to be? We win was her suggestion. We win. Well, we do. We do. And that's what we see there. And so this, this, this unveiling, this pulling back the curtain, all right, shows us Jesus. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And apart from Revelation, apart from this last book in the Bible, it starts in Genesis and leads all the way up. But we would not know Christ the way we should were it not for Revelation. Because we're going to see him in in a fulfilled way, in a complete way that we would not see otherwise. Now, now notice the, the chain of command. Look at the text. Look at how this vision came to us. This revelation of Jesus, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, even to what he saw. So here's here's. The process that it got here, the, pro- the way we have the book of Revelation. God gave it to Jesus. Jesus, in some way, gave it to an angel. There's no other book in the Bible that's going to teach us more about the role and responsibility of angels than the book of Revelation. Angels are a big deal in Revelation. Now, where our society and societies before us have gotten it wrong is, is we worship them. We esteem them in ways... Very unhealthy in ways that we shouldn't. Revelation will tell us, don't do that. (laughs) Worship God. That's what we'll see. But Jesus gave that revelation to an angel. And that angel then somehow communicated it to John in this vision that he's going to lay out for us when we get down to verse 9. And then John gives it to us. He gives it to the churches. So that's the process. God to Jesus to an angel to John. So in one sense, it's a revelation of Jesus 
It's about Jesus and it belongs to Jesus. I think, it, I think there's a dual meaning when it says the revelation of Jesus. And so that's what we see there. And it's a revelation about what's going to happen in the future. Notice what he says. It's what must soon take place. That word must gives it an urgency. Like this will happen. Okay? If God says it, it's going to happen. And that's the idea here. This is going to take place. It must happen. It's absolutely certain. Nothing's going to change these plans. So listen to what it says about the nature of the book of Revelation. Listen to what it says. Because there's a couple of words here that we've already seen the word, the revelation or the apocalypse, the apocalypso. Also, we see it's the word of prophecy. And then down in verse 4, John writes to seven churches. So this this book is, is a revelation, a pulling back the curtain. But it's also a prophecy. John comes in the line of a lot of other prophets before him. All right? And what is a prophecy? What did the prophets do in the Old Testament? Well, sometimes they foretold what was going to take place in the future, right? Sometimes they foretold, meaning this is the word of God. Thus says the Lord, do this. And the book of Revelation is both of those. We have often dismissed one for the sake of the other. Everybody looks to the book of Revelation to think about what's going to happen. But the prophetic word, the forthtelling word from John is, wait a minute, how does that word apply to us today? What are we to do with it now? How does it change the way we live, the way we love, the way we serve now? And so it's a prophecy in that sense. But it's also an epistle. It's, a, it's what they call a circular epistle. John wrote it to seven churches, seven congregations. And it's a picture, if you will, that those churches are representative of, of the whole church. It's a circular epistle. All right? So, so we will see that. Now, look at the timing. These things that must soon take place. What are you thinking? Man, it's been 2,000 years how soon is soon? Hmm? I mean, you should be thinking that. How, when is this going to happen? What, what's the time frame here? And the first thing that I think about, the first thing we need to recognize is what Peter tells us. Beloved, don't overlook the fact that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is his one day. The Lord doesn't keep time the way we do. But we'll see this more as the book of Revelation unfolds. This understanding that we are in those last days. Okay? But it's not the kind of thing where we look at our watch and look at our calendar and kind of keep track of that. That's been the fault and the failure of many before us. All right? If you're looking for me to interpret or understand the book of Revelation when we start getting to these passages the way Hal Lindsey did, you'll be disappointed. I'll just tell you that. I don't know what those things mean, but I do not believe that the locusts are flying helicopters. All right? And and the understanding of Hal Lindsey, and I read the book, okay? The late great planet Earth was the top-selling nonfiction book in the decade of the 70s. And... And I understand that, all right? But the idea that all of this picture is to help us put a date 
on when it's all going to happen? No, I don't think that's what Revelation does for us. He says these things that must soon take place. I invite you to turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel shows us what these things that must soon take place. He helps us see what that understand, what helps us see what that is. So over in the Old Testament book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he wanted it interpreted. But he wasn't going to tell anybody what the dream was. All right? I want you to tell me what my dream meant, but I'm not going to tell you what that dream was. Well, that's kind of unfair, Neb. I mean, (laughs) you're putting these guys in a really hard place. But that was his requirement. I want somebody to come in and interpret my dream, and I want them to tell me what the dream was. And all of his magicians are telling him, you cannot do that. He said, well, I'm going to tear you limb from limb and burn down your houses. And so they, they, the word came to Daniel when, when the, the authority that the king had put over the responsibility going and doing away with all of these magicians. When he came to Daniel, Daniel said, hold on for just a minute. And so he went to his brothers and they began to pray and God answered the prayer. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I do want you to look at what transpires in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Now, these key words through Daniel chapter 2 are make known... Show, reveal, those same words are the Greek translation of of some of the words we read in Revelation chapter 1. So just keep that in mind. Are you able to make known to me the dream? Daniel answered the king in verse 27 and said, No wise man, no enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and your visions of your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than any other living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. I'm not going to read the interpretation, but it it spells out what we see later on in Revelation. The point here is that there's a God in heaven who pulls back the curtain and unveils what's about to be taking place. Daniel understood that, John understood that, and John sees that as the fulfillment of what he is doing. This is being made known now. There's a direct reference. What John says is happening now, Daniel said would happen in the latter days. So Daniel's latter days are John's now and our now. We're we're in the midst of that, okay? So that's the process. There's a revelation there. But then look again at verse 3. There is a blessing there. There's a blessing to us. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what is written for the time is near. Later on in Revelation 22, the book will end with the promise of that same blessing to the one who does what Revelation says. The one who reads, particularly out loud. The one who hears and the one who does. 
is blessed. It goes back to Matthew. Back to the Beatitudes that Jesus proclaimed. And there that blessing was not just being happy. It was the idea of telos. It was the idea of being fulfilled. Reaching the end desire. We need what's in the book of Revelation to become what it is that God wants us to be. And that's promised to us. God intends for us to read it. I think he intends for us to read it out loud, to understand it and keep it and apply it in our lives through the Holy Spirit so we can grow as the disciples that he wants us to be. And the book of Revelation is not given to confuse us. It's not given to divide us. It's not given to put us in camps. All right? It's given to encourage us. It's given us to remind us that the eternal God is eternally victorious. That His Son, the Lord Jesus, is the Lamb who was slain and now reigns. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the Root of David. All of that going back to the Old Testament. And He is the one who conquers. And that's the promise for us. It's The book of Revelation is given church to encourage us, to remind us that as we battle against what is unseen but very real, We can do it with confidence. We can do it with encouragement. We can do it with the full armor of God. We can do it because Christ is our champion. Now look at verse 4. There's a greeting. And this greeting is very similar to what you'd read in all the epistles from Paul. There's this greeting to the church there. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So there's this greeting from John. We've been blessed, some of us, to to go to the region of Turkey where these seven churches were. I was able to to go to the Basilica of St. John, the ruins of that basilica in old Ephesus, in ancient Ephesus. And that's where tradition says that John is buried. And so John was intimately familiar with these churches. He loved these believers. He loved these congregations. And he's writing to them to encourage them. He's writing them to build them up. He's writing to them to remind them that they're not fighting in a futile battle. Okay? But the focus here is not on John. He calls himself a bondservant, literally a slave. And he calls those to whom he's writing servants of Christ. I love his humility. Ben, ben and I, Ben Wilson and I were talking this morning in the office as we were praying. And this idea of the unveiling. The prophet, the prophet Isaiah prayed in 64 that God would rend the heavens and tear them open so we could see. All right? When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were, Mark says, torn open. And the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. Stephen looked up and saw the heavens torn open, and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And, and the, the comment that, that Ben made was, well, you know, Paul says he had this revelation of the seventh heaven. So I, I was, I've been thinking about that. Why, why didn't Paul then write revelation? And, and I think part of the answer, the reason the Holy Spirit didn't lead Paul to write it, may have been because of Paul's character. This is just my speculation. There's not a lot of thought or prayer behind this. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that a thorn was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited about the vision that he saw. Paul was proud. And God humbled him. John is humble. 
And very little is said about John. He says very little about himself, even, even in his letters and in his epistles. So John is humble. Revelation will humble us, I believe. I really think it will. I mean, it, it is me as, as, as a preacher. You know, it's, it's just, I'm telling you, it's just a, it's crazy. To, I feel completely helpless in some ways to begin to teach through this book. That in some ways I don't have a clue. It's a humbling thing. It should be humbling to all of us. We do not understand this book. All right? He's humbled by this vision that he sees. And in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come. That's the goal of the book of Revelation. To give us grace and peace. All right? Not to confuse us. Not to lead us off on some wild rabbit chases. Now notice what he says. There's a greeting from John, but then there's a greeting from God. From the Godhead. A greeting from the Trinity. Alright? Notice what it says. Peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, we're going to see, sometimes in Revelations it's tough to tell who's talking. Later on in the book, it's going to be hard sometimes to discern. Well, who exactly is speaking? Is it God? Is it Jesus? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it an angel? Is it John? And I don't, and, and all I know is one thing I've seen already as I've been reading through the book. He who has an ear, let him hear. It really doesn't matter in some parts of Revelation who's speaking. You just need to be listening. Okay? We just need to be listening. And so here, the first thing we hear is a word of greeting, if you will, from the Father. From him who is, who was, and is to come. Again, there's several Old Testament allusions here. God said in Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, beside me there is no God. So we need to understand that when God, and it's interesting here because it begins with the present. The one who is, He is Lord now. He told Abraham, I am that I am. He is now, He was, and He always will be. He is transcendent over our understanding of time, eternal in the fullest sense of the word, and God over all of it. And so God is not merely in three time frames, okay? We don't see God that way. He doesn't communicate himself that way, but he helps us understand that he is over all. This comes from God the Father. He is the Lord over all of history, all of history. And then there's this, this somewhat strange from, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, seven is the most popular number in the book of Revelation. Nothing comes close. And multiples of seven are popular in the book of Revelation. And and I believe this, and I'm not alone in this, and I didn't think this up. Most scholars agree that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Not seven spirits, but really more sevenfold. The sevenfold spirit. Well, what seven aspects of the Holy Spirit might he be talking about? It's not talking about seven aspects. John is talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The word seven, I mean the number seven, there in the book of Genesis gives us a picture of completion of creation. He's complete. He is full in every way. And I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. It would make no sense for this greeting to come from God the Father and then from the Son and then from these seven things someplace. It's a Trinitarian greeting. I think. And so it's this greeting from the Holy Spirit. 
And even more than that, it's a direct reference to Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4, there's this vision, if you will, of the prophet. And God's going to rebuild the temple or he's going to enable the temple to be rebuilt. And there the spirit is seen as this lampstand. And the number seven is used. And so this is a direct reference to Zechariah. The same spirit that was going to enable the rebuilding of the temple is the same spirit that's going to bless and encourage and build the church in Revelation. And so there's a greeting from him. It's the same spirit that indwells you and me. It's the same spirit that I've been hungering for and praying that God would give me more hunger for him in 2021 than I had in 2020. So it's a greeting from the spirit. And then from Jesus. Notice what the text says here. From, from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there's three, three identifications, if you will, of Jesus. Jesus first is the faithful witness. Now remember, this revelation is of Jesus. It is from him. So he is witnessing, if you will, through an angel to John, through John to us. But even more than that, he is a faithful witness in that he, read back through the Gospels, the words that he said, the deeds that he did, the miracles that he performed were all in obedience to the Father. He was a faithful witness. When he was asked by the Sanhedrin and the rulers if he was who he said he was, he said, I am. He's faithful. He told the truth. He's a faithful witness. Secondly, he's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn can mean a couple of things. I think it means both of them here. One is firstborn in preeminent. Okay? He's the first, meaning he's the top. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the first, if you will, in God's household. The first in rank. That's one way to see it, and I think that's what it means here. He is the firstborn of the dead. But it is also the firstborn, like Paul says, he is the first fruit. He's the first of many to follow. Who is resurrected. That's our hope as Christians, right? That's what we hold to. That he walked through death and came through on the other side. And we hold to that promise. That he is the first one and we will follow him. And and this is a powerful word of encouragement for us. John's letter to the church in Smyrna. That's going to follow here in these letters to the church. They are being persecuted. They are being faithful unto death, he says. The devil is putting them in prison. And the encouragement that he gives them and us is that when we face situations and circumstances like that, we need to remember that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And because of him, we have victory, right? That's that's the promise to us. That's the encouragement to us. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then thirdly, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the ruler over all kings. He is preeminent. He ruled over the Roman Empire. There is a position of interpretation of of the book of Revelation that says that everything that we read about took place leading up to the destruction of of the tabernacle in A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple. Well, if that's the case, it means nothing to you and me, I believe. You know, those who hold that everything that's that's read here is fulfilled leading up through the Roman Empire into the destruction then I don't know what it means to us if that's the case. No, Jesus is king over the Roman Empire. He's king over the empire of Genghis Khan and and all who followed. All right? He is king over every dictator, king over every prime minister. 
king over every president, king over every human government, king over every Congress and every Senate that has ever been or will be until he comes. He is king. He is preeminent over that. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is an allusion, if not a direct reference, back to Daniel chapter 7. And the kingdoms of men that would fall before the throne of this son of man. He is king of all. As John receives this revelation, as he receives this vision, he does what Paul would often do, which is break out into a song of praise. He just look at verses 5 and 6. Now, this is, this is John speaking here. And this is John's praise back to, back to Jesus, back to God, back to the Holy Spirit. Revelation starting there in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and, to, and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's his song of praise. That's his doxology. Back to the one who gives this revelation. Back to the revealer. The one who pulls the curtain back. And the first thing he says is something that I think is, oh, if we would be like John and just never get over the fact that Jesus loves us. Just don't get over it. John never got over the fact that he was loved by Jesus. That's how he refers to himself in his gospel. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he doesn't even use his first name. He just calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He never got over it. He said in his epistle in 1 John four nineteen, we love, why? Huh? Because he first loved us. He never got over the fact that the one who is and was and always will be so loved this broken, sinful world that he gave his one and only son. John never got over it. He loved us. He loves us, present tense. And He frees us. For all time, He has freed us from our sins by His blood. This is, the book of Revelation is this picture throughout of the gospel. This Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and by His blood redeems people from every tribe and tongue and nation and frees them, frees us from our sins. From the condemnation of that sin, from the judgment of that sin, and from the chains that hold us in that sin. He frees us from that. He set us free from that. He's broken those chains. Amen? That's, he frees us from that. And then he gives us a purpose. Notice that he says, we are a kingdom. And there's a comma there. And we are priest to his God and Father. So there's this, first we are God's kingdom. Recognize something really important here, church. This is not geography. Okay? This is not a kingdom that's on a map. The kingdom of God is not Him going and conquering Russia and taking it back from the communist. The kingdom of God is not Him going and conquering China and putting a Christian flag over it instead of the flag of China. The kingdom of God is not accomplished through any political means, any party. He is not there trying to take Afghanistan back from the Muslims. The kingdom of God is people. People. All right? Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom of God, until it is consummated, 
And that city becomes the fulfillment of Eden, which we will get to, better than the old one, then that kingdom is being built one person at a time. One person at a time. And so God is building his kingdom and he's going after people. Let that be our passion this year. Going after people. He wants to build his kingdom in in our houses through our family. He wants to build his kingdom in our neighborhood. He wants to build his kingdom one person at a time in Roxborough, North Carolina, and here in our country and around the world. He's, he's, he's made us a kingdom. And he's made us, then secondly, priests in that kingdom. And, of course, this is an allusion back to the Old Testament. But those priests there offered what? Animals, bulls, heifers, lambs, doves, if you couldn't afford the other. We don't offer animals. Those aren't needed anymore, the writer of Hebrews tells us, right? Those are done with. That's old and obsolete. We offer our worship. We offer the sacrifice of, of lips. And we offer ourselves, Paul says, as, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. We, we intercede on behalf of our community and our culture and our families as priests do. We are a kingdom of priests. So he's given us a purpose here. And what's so cool about this is in Revelation 19, God was speaking to Israel and he said, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. That was future tense. John's saying it's present tense. We are that now. Okay. I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. Here's an answer. Here's an answer. Seek his kingdom. And be his priest. That's what he saved you to be. All right? Peter understood this. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That's, that's our role. That's our responsibility. The text begins to come to an end here in verse 7. Just kind of referring again, referencing. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, John says, amen. Well, what, what comes to mind as you hear that being read? Well, I go back to Acts first. I go back to, to the ascension of Jesus, where it says, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight, and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you into the heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. He went up into a cloud, he will come back in the clouds. John tells us that. And every eye will see him. Remember what we learned in the genealogy, what we've seen in all of our nativity stories? Nobody knew he was here, did they? A few shepherds, a few wise men. It was a secret. Nobody knew he was here. That won't happen. It won't be that way next time. The the cloud will be torn back, the veil will be torn back, and every eye will see him. Paul says every tongue will confess. The writer of Hebrews tells us that right now we're seeing with eyes of faith, right? You won't need faith when Jesus comes back. All right? It'll be too late for saving faith. It'll just be so so the so the humanist, 
and the scientist and the naturalist who says, I have to have empirical evidence before I'm going to believe. Well, brother, you will have it. You'll see it. You'll see him. And then you'll believe, all right? The religious leaders, because it says here, even those who pierced him. That's amazing. Those Pharisees and Sadducees, all those religious people who stood in front of the cross and mocked him and wagged their heads at him, they'll see him this next time and they'll know who he is. Those atheists who deny the presence of God, the reality of God, nope, they'll see him. They'll know he's for sure there. All right? Muslims, Hindus, you name it, they will see him. And here's the thing that it kind of just struck me this morning as I was praying through this. John says here, so shall it be, amen. John, what, what are you saying there? One of the goals of Revelation is that we would glory in, first, the mercy of God, and then secondly, the justice or judgment of God. As, as the throngs in heaven see God pouring out His judgment, worship follows. It's an amazing mystery to me to see that happen. And, and God wants His people. I think He wants us. He wants us strengthened by His mercy. He wants us filled with worship by His mercy. And He wants us filled with hope at His, at his justice. God will make things right. But here's the thing, don't, don't let this slip by you, okay? Those who pierced him, I have a picture in my office. It used to be hanging on the wall from one of the evangelistic tools we used of, of a person who looks just like me kneeling at the foot of the cross holding a hammer with blood dripping on my hand. Those who pierced him are you and me. Those who pierced him are every human being. We've rebelled. We've stood in God's face and refused Him. Those who pierced Him include us. Praise God for His mercy, right? Praise God for His mercy. It ends with this declaration in verse 8. God again proclaims Himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And it's just, we're going to see this again and again. I'm not going to take time to, to try to develop that. It will be developed throughout 20, all, of these, all these 21 chapters of Revelation. God is the God of history, ruling over all things. The beginning, the end, and today. Right? We, we stand on that. We trust in that. So let me give you three quick points of application for these first. This is all the prologue, Okay. The book of Revelation begins with a prologue, it ends with an epilogue, and all of that that's in the middle is, is where we'll dive in. But here's, here's the first application, and I just said it. Those who pierced him includes you. It includes me. The hammer is in our hands. And apart from, from Christ's redeeming blood... And the appropriation of that blood over our sins as we in faith ask God for his forgiveness. Apart from that blood, we stand as God's enemies. And what we see unfolding in Revelation will be poured out. So there's this offer of grace. Can, can you say today with John, 
He has freed me from my sins by his blood. Can you say that? If not, I, I invite you to, to come to me, Jason, JT, come to any member of our church. Or if you are a member of our church, come to one of your pastors and say, I need to talk to you about what it means to be freed from my sins by his blood. Secondly, for the Christian, two things. One, again, the whole purpose of Revelation is not for, to, to kind of spur on our imagination to some wild interpretation. It is to spur on our faithfulness and our obedience. It is to encourage us. It is to open our eyes to spiritual realities that are going on around us. And as we read the word, as we hear it, and as we obey it, we will be comforted, we will be encouraged, we'll be spurred on to faithfulness. Secondly, in that area, as, as we've sung and said already, the greatness and the glory of Jesus is the point of revelation. Luther missed it on that one. I'm sorry, he missed it. The greatness and glory of Jesus. As you begin this new year, I don't know what that might look like in your life, but would you pray with me? God, just make that the goal of my life this year, the greatness and glory of Jesus. And then thirdly and finally for us as a church, it says in Zechariah chapter 4, that reference there, the Lord spoke, and then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord to Westwood too. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I don't know what we'll accomplish this year, but it will be absolutely nothing unless it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So join me and your elders in praying that the Holy Spirit would lead us and empower us in this year. Let's pray. Blessing, honor, and glory be to you, Lord, as you are seated on the throne. And we pray that as we begin this journey through this amazing part of your scriptures, God, that you will continue to pull back the curtain. Help us be encouraged. Help us be challenged. By your spirit, lead us to be obedient and faithful servants of yours. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.